This is RDQI. This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Pete's Haberdashery. Hey Dave, are we funny? Yes. Emphatically yes. Yeah, okay, I don't care about what you think. Is there anyone else that actually thinks <laughs> we're funny? Co- confidence is a big part of humor, so yeah, sure. Kind of, not really. Yeah, sure. Oh, hey Lindsay, hey. what's going on? What's up? Uh, welcome to the podcast. So, thank you. Are we are, are Ryan and I funny? I mean, yeah, just about nothing. Nothing isn't funny, hundred percent. Someone's gonna find there. You know, the, you know, Gallagher was smashing watermelons on stage with a hammer. People found that funny. Two suburban white guys talking on a podcast about <laughs> finances. Someone's gonna find that funny. <laughs> but uh, like, they're laughing at us, right? Not with us. Little column A, little column B. <laughs> and is it really such a bad uh, thing for someone to laugh at you? Because I've always thought if you can't laugh at yourself, what good are you as a human? Which is a little bit, you know, over the top. But you have to be able you know, to laugh at yourself. Isn't that kind of like the intro to sort of like televised comedy or comedy as a as a as a thing? You know, like the, I think of like the slapstick of the you know Charlie Chaplin silent film era which is all about laughing at someone right yeah i mean chaplin was always still the hero um but you know if you think of like the three stooges uh people don't realize the three stooges were like kind of the first to um mock hitler actually and you know that was a great example of yeah you're always laughing at the three stooges they're not necessarily the hero of most of their stories but the the episode they did on hitler is amazing please go back I didn't think you, yeah, right into the podcast. Let's talk, let's talk Hitler. This is a comedy podcast, but it's amazing. And they're, they're laughing at him and it was, uh, it was a big deal and really controversial as far as like to, to, to people who liked Hitler. Okay. You know, those people, um, uh, no, it was just a bit, it's just historically a big deal in comedy and cause people kind of remember it as, um, you know, like duck soup. Mm. So was the whole, was the, that, I've never thought about that before, but obviously the three stooges all have that like Hitler mustache all the time. Right. Or am I not no. thinking about that? Correctly? No, I think you're just multiplying Charlie. Yeah. Chaplin I mean, Chaplin times. had a little bit of the mustache. I, but that was... I, I totally was. Chaplin had the mustache. It wasn't it that Hitler got the mustache. To I just had to three Chaplins and one of them had curly hair. And one of them had curly hair. Um, no, I mean, I don't mean to say that <laughs> I love Charlie Chaplin. I really do. And uh, I was just pointing out that, you know, the, the three stooges are better for laughing at a character. I mean, yeah, you're laughing at Charlie Chaplin, but he, he's the hero of his, of his movies. I mean, Buster Keaton, same thing. Um, but as far as laughing at you guys or laughing at someone who's trying to make you laugh is that's actually what's kind of complicated about doing like stand up versus improv. Cause I've done both. And improv is is a team effort, and so you have other people to lean on. If you screw up, you know someone else is stepping into the spotlight immediately, saves you. But stand up is great because you stand on stage and it's all yours. Every laugh is yours, and you're drunk on it. It's amazing. But also, you're standing in front of a group of people and saying, like, please, for the love of God, laugh at me. I don't care <laughs> what you're laughing at. Just laugh. Please laugh. Oh, my God. And that can be good and bad, <laughs> considering the types of people attracted to to that kind of work. So have you ever, have you ever 
bombed on stage. Like I, I listen to interviews with all these standups and they all talk about like the time that they bombed and it's like this rite of passage in standup comedy. And I've often sort of thought about like what makes an audience just absolutely die laughing. Cause I've been to comedy shows and there's stuff that I've laughed at that I like probably would not have laughed at if I was watching it on TV in my basement by myself, but you're just in this room with this energy and you're just like, you're primed to think everything is funny. Yeah. And there's usually a drink minimum, uh, <laughs> but, which definitely helps, but yes, I've bombed and yes, everyone's bombed. And it's more, it's like, it's the time I bombed spectacularly, whether it was like, you know, I, I was, you know, a black comedian in an all white town and none of my jokes landed, something like that. Or more frequently, it's little mini bombs you have because you're always trying to work through material or at least if you're like, if you haven't made it, you're always trying to work through material. Mm -hmm. So you'll write a joke or if you're me, you'll kind of say something at a party that for some reason everyone laughs at and you're like, oh, I'm, I got to go to the bathroom, write that down on my phone <laughs> and then try and work that into my routine. Um because I'm really bad at sitting down and writing jokes, but, uh, and then you get up there and bombing is workshopping the joke and kind of trying to find, find the laugh, find where, find where it's not working. So bombing's like a kind of an integral part of the, the process as a non-expert. Has a joke or even a whole set or a series of jokes, have they ever bombed and you literally did the same thing in another environment and it was just, it was, it was a riot. Hmm. Yes. hundred percent. The first time I did stand up, I did, um, I did all right. It was, it was an open mic and I mean, I'm not, you know, some huge accomplished comedian, but you have a tight five. Your tight five is five minutes of material you've worked on. You're timing out like kind of whether or not the jokes work well, you're working with the laughs, you have a tight five. Mm -hmm. And I had a somewhat tight five, <laughs> a loose five. Um, <laughs> And it and and I killed it. I workshopped it with friends, killed it my first show, and then my second show. It was it was pretty much crickets. It was it wasn't crickets. People weren't mad. People were like pol polite chuckles. So yeah. you'll oh. love it, Dave. But <laughs> and it, it was totally screwed. And I think it was partly my energy, partly that there wasn't a drink minimum or drinking at the next <laughs> venue because it was just it was like a sort of studio house kind of situation. Yeah. But yes, to answer your question, one hundred percent yes. <laughs> Yeah, so how, okay, so if you walk into a room, do you gauge what the audience is like and kind of tailor your message to it? Or you just commit to your jokes anyways and say either they're going to find me funny or not? I mean, if I'm, if I were to do stand up, yeah. I mean, if I had enough material, sure. I have never at any point had enough material to like look at the crowd and be like, well, can't use that Trump joke or something like that. I mean, nothing's so topical. Um, Sure. that it would work that way. But I, when I was, when I was doing comedy a lot, I loved that I was a server in a restaurant because I took, it was a small restaurant and I took every table as a new audience and I'd kind of try to feel out, okay, what are they <laughs> going to find funny? And, and genuinely, it's not like I was finding new material to throw into my act. It was more that I was trying to see if I could make these strangers laugh. And and it worked in my favor most of the time. And every so often you're like, that guy is just not picking up what I'm putting down. I got to stop. I got to get out of here. That's yeah. a good way to hone your intuition about what is funny to someone else. A lot of servers are in a lot of, or at least a lot of comedians are servers rather. And I think it works out or bartenders and it's, you do get your own little stage, your own little audience. Yeah. So what, what got you into doing something like that? So... 
you guys are relatively funny people. Not on the podcast, obviously. Yes. This is trash. But in real life, I've met, you know, I've, I've hung around both of you. You guys are relatively funny people. I'm sure at some point you've just had a moment at a party or had a moment with, with a group of people where someone's been like, you should do comedy. You should do stand up or something like that. Like someone's just been like, you're just really funny, right? Mm-hmm. Not me. No, no not, not really. Not me at okay, all. Okay. Was that just a <laughs> thing just assumed happened to everybody? Um, <laughs> Okay, well, forget. You know when you're at a party. (laughs) You know that thing when you're actually a funny person. No, um, so I mean, I was always a class clown, and I think the bar for being considered like a class clown or having people tell you you should do stand up for women is a little higher. For men, it's kind of like you're overweight and you make racist jokes in middle school. Someone's gonna be like, you should do stand up. But like, if you're like, and I'm not saying uh, whatever, but like. I, I just kept hearing that I was funny and comedy got me out of a lot of tight spots when I was honestly like really little and it, it was kind of the only way I could come off as confident and so it kind of got stamped into my brain and I lived near Chicago I knew I wanted to be in Chicago Chicago's the comedy city so uh yeah and I, I actually never wanted to do stand-up and I would constantly gift gifts like you know how to be a stand-up how to how to write a stand-up routine i'd be like you fools i want to write for television like as if there's just a through line to going from being in high school to immediately writing yeah for for saturday night live and um, i saw john mulaney did it i think uh john mulaney i mean he was a stand-up though I, I, he's from chicago yeah, but he was a stand-up like the, <laughs> that's the thing is they uh <laughs> no but john mulaney is a good example where like it, you know if you need a new writer or actor for a show i mean they'll hire that they the like, Big i mean comedy it, see but, that was another miss there's right. gonna be a lot of that you should cue up some some like shock jock wah, wah, yeah, wah. yeah yeah some of that just yep. just have it have it at the ready but um people will go and and go see stand-up shows and i I don't know if it's seeing like a particularly mag magnetic personality that says put him on screen or get her in the writer's room or whatever Mm -hmm. but i kind of started i got sick of people telling me i should do stand-up and i was taking classes at second city and i was like you know what well screw it i'll try and um you know stand-up comedy is trying until you're entirely living off of it, I guess. It's all trying. So, uh, yeah, I started doing stand-up, and um, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. So how, what what led you to Second City? Because improv is an incredibly intimidating thing to do to begin with. So obviously you're comfortable enough with that that you're like, yeah, I'm going to put myself out there. Improv always seemed easier to me. I mean, it's you're given parameters, you know, you're, there's rules to a game you're playing or there's rules to a scene you're trying and you get a suggestion and then you're, I mean, I guess I'm relatively quick or something, but improv never seemed that daunting. And then of course the same thing happened to me that happens to everyone who is like, Oh, everyone at work says I'm so funny. I'm going to take a class at second city and you get to second city for improv class and you spend weeks on object work, which just means like if you're drinking out of a coffee cup, I got a believe there's a coffee cup in your hand right now sorry i'm allowed to swear i didn't mean to we, we we try not to we try not to get super topical with stuff either like politically charged too bad i'm gonna <laughs> but, I, I can totally relate this to socialism in like two steps okay? just, <laughs> just, give, give me a second i can get there um actually no i do have a good point on that anyways um but yeah so i started doing uh yeah the second city you know i just you're in a room you know, you're, you feel like a big fish in a small pond. You're like, I'm my funniest, the funniest person in my friend group. I'm the funniest person in class. And you get to Second City and you're with every other class clown. Mm-hmm. And it is 
insufferable because <laughs> second city when you first start out is trying to beat you out of trying to get the laugh just for you because people get hmm. up there and there's a lot of selfishness like there in my first second city class there were these two guys who were like carbon copies of each other they were nice enough but they were both clearly like the funniest people in their small pond and then they got to second city and and our instructor like they'd tell a joke and we'd laugh and he'd be like that was terrible you ignored your partner in the scene you didn't yes and you wanted to tell a joke and we're trying to act out a scene Hmm. so improv is a lot less stressful to me with i don't know with my skill set or my comedy i don't know improv is it's generous it's it's and it's it gets erased real fast you know Mm, like slam the scenes over we're into a next thing you know yeah well it's like a true team sport you know like you're you know you you don't have to be crushing every joke or you don't have to have it right there because somebody else is gonna you know come get your back if you you know if you don't have the one-liner zinger right there i mean you guys are doing a podcast together like dave if you go off on a a tangent or something and you peter out i've listened you you know ryan will step in and and (laughs) kind of try to pick up your point for you again and and it's that except you know oh you're in a gas station and someone just walked in with a kangaroo it's like okay well it's i feel like it'd be hard to run out of things to talk about in that scenario but if you do someone's gonna step in and fix that yeah and someone you know you can even break the rules of the game to come in i was i was watching an improv group uh and they were bombing doing terribly and like 15 minutes earlier at the beginning of the show one of them had tripped on stage and it was ridiculous like it was just it was like a (laughs) pratfall and she was just rolling around and they and then yeah like like 20 minutes later or something they were bombing in a scene and someone was on the sign lights not in the scene and i really respected that he then just imitated her trip onto the stage (laughs) and it saved the situation i mean it was lazy comedy i guess like i'm sure that uh, someone be listening to that and like, oh, that was that was a cop out. But 100% it was a cop out. That scene was going nowhere and it was painful for everyone in the room. So <laughs> improv has uh, has like cheat codes built in. It has it has outs, you know. What does lazy comedy mean? Um, I mean, it's hacky comedy. It's it's the obvious joke that might be funny, but it's the joke that everyone could have come up with. Isn't that kind of like, like a, the a stick dad figure joke by definition is lazy comedy? I mean, I love a dad joke because it's comforting and and it's applying dad comedy to like I think the millennial embrace of of dad jokes is kind of sweet. But I'm trying to think of a good hacky joke. I also think that that dad comedy. So so I I was having this conversation with a director of a Second City show one time about like the philosophy of comedy, which is is such a weird thing to think about because you're like being very serious about something inherently very silly. Um, but he, he was telling me, you know, he's, he's talking about how humor is surprise. Right. And that's why a joke can be cliched because once you, once the audience knows where it's going, it's not as funny anymore. Like some of the things that you absolutely just, you know, belly laugh at just kind of come out of left field like you're not expecting it and so when i when i think of a lazy joke like okay it's the joke that that everybody would have made but if everybody would have made it it wouldn't really be that funny and some dad jokes are really lame but they're also very surprising it's like oh you know that's a play on words that's really you know witty and goofy and it's it's grown worthy but but in the timing it's and also, the context it just seems 
surprising. I know what you mean there. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> on the, I mean, I, I, on the topic of philosophy of comedy, I actually have a, I, I made it into a monologue because I was in an acting class at the time and I was lazy, but um, I actually have a really st- strong opinion about, and it, it applies to dad jokes, but hacky comedy isn't just like form jokes, you know, like knock knock jokes I'm obsessed with because if you think about it, like a lot of great art falls, you know, ha- has structure to it. Like if you think about a sonnet, right? A sonnet's a poem with three stanzas, a rhyming couplet, ABAB rhyme scheme, or iambic pentameter, however you want to do it. Okay. A knock knock joke to me is like, it's like a haiku or something. You have clear rules to the format, right? And if, if we all hadn't heard the orange, you glad I didn't say banana knock knock joke when we were like six yeah, and you just knew what knock knock jokes were. And then someone made that joke. It would be hilarious. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it would be really funny because you know, if you have rules like, you know, Shakespearean sonnets, like Shakespeare wrote broke rules of sonnets, but you have to break it for a reason. You can't just be like, well, screw it. I'm throwing it out. No, it has to be really beautiful. So if you're going to break the rules of the knock knock joke format, it's, it should be pretty funny. And that's a really good joke. <laughs> like I feel that way strongly. <laughs> and, and I said this, <laughs> I came up with this hammered one night at a party where someone was upset because they had some art assignment and they broke the rules or something. And I was like, you did something magical. And then I just went off about knock knock jokes and I don't know where it came from, but it was that thing where I went to the bathroom, wrote that down. And I was like, okay, that's not funny enough to put in a show, but I don't really feel like doing this monologue for a class. So I kind of of hone that. And I, I, I do feel really strongly that like form jokes, dad jokes, puns are awesome. A great pun is amazing. People groan about it and, and whatever, but it is, it's, if it's a good pun, it's clever. And dad jokes are often puns. Like it's kind of my favorite, my favorite kind of humor. And, and admittedly, like it, I've never, I don't think I've really laughed out loud at a, or, you know, like really hilariously laughed at a, mm-hmm. at a pun, but like there's an appreciation there that I don't have for other forms of humor. Like, yes, that's so clever. And I love it. I mean, I feel like with other forms of humor, it's like, I can't have the brain of Richard Pryor. You know, I'm not going to come up with a Richard Pryor joke for a few reasons. I'm not going to come up with a Richard Pryor joke, but a pun, it's like something that was attainable to you. You have your, you know, English is your first and only language, Dave. I don't know. Do you speak other language? Um, but puns, it's like it was right there and you totally missed it, but someone got to it first. But <laughs> also, we're going to need an example of a knock knock joke. An example knock knock joke? Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, Jesus like a good knock knock joke. Like, I don't have that many good knock knock jokes. I don't sit around. Well, you just went on about how they're the greatest form I just of humor. Meant, if, if I hear a good knock knock joke, of which I've never written one, then I am beside myself. Because okay. I think we're really tired of the medium, but in theory, a good knock-knock joke is like is like Shakespeare. Yeah, <laughs> write it down. English major over here. Um, I don't know. Did that answer the question that you asked 36 minutes ago? <laughs> Maybe. So, okay, stand-up is one thing, right? Because, okay, so I've, I've never, because I would be terrified to do it, got up on stage and talked in front of people and then expected them to laugh for some reason. How do you translate being funny in a room with friends to getting up on stage and then being able to actually, like, I I totally have no idea how that actually works. Um, I think that's kind of the difference between like someone who's just good at being mean to their friends and having it be funny versus like someone who's good at 
walking into a room of strangers and making them laugh. I think there's there's probably like a line of demarcation <laughs> that uh, I mean. Uh, uh, there's there's a story that our, our one of our good friends used to tell, and I remember hearing somebody say to him, "Oh, you should you got to do stand up because his delivery was perfect." But the whole thing was predicated on like you knowing who he was, you knowing why this particular thing that happened in the story was funny to him, and if you didn't, like it would just fall completely flat. And that's what a lot of great you know comedians do, especially in you know like long set standup is they tend to have in the back half a lot of callbacks to like they paint this picture of who they are, the context, and then they make a joke that you already understand the context to and now it's hilarious because it's like somebody telling you a joke that you know really well or a story and you're like, oh, that's funny because I know you. Well, and and a big part of it is also like uh, not all comedians do this, but most modern comedians too is trying to make it seem like you're coming up with it on the fly like I mean no one in the audience thinks that you know Dane Cook is just just telling this joke for the first time but (laughs) actually Dane Cook is a good example of someone who uh tells stories mostly he doesn't tell that many jokes um and you know the the punchline of his stories come out and he can probably sell a lot of merch on them but they aren't jokes like they aren't Mitch Hedberg like rapid fire right that's all it is you know it was just all just jokes mm -hmm. and when dane cook was really popular and i i I get and i understand and it's not like dane cook's suffering from it that people are kind of like oh you're the dane cook of (laughs) of whatever that's fine um but he he was really good at what he was doing and he was a comedy superstar like a huge deal yeah he really was at the time that he was like a really big deal i was uh taking some classes at second city and a couple of the, so we had one instructor, but you kind of end up encountering other people on the staff. And we were talking to a few of them and they were like, I'm so sick of Dane Cook. I mean, honestly, at a certain point, just tell a joke. And I was kind of frustrated with that because I was like, well, Jim Gaffigan does the same thing Dane Cook does. It's just Dane Cook does it. And he looks kind of like a Guido, you know, and 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 he's so popular that people have to kind of talk trash about him because he's just so popular and it's not like I'm like number one Dane Cook fan he's definitely made me laugh but I mean then there's like uh, Maria Bamford is a comedian I constantly recommend uh people to check out because first off you'd be amazed in this day and age how frequently people ask me um to name like make a list of funny women (laughs) like it happens oh man within a it still happens or people re- referencing um Christopher Hitchens or something is that he was the one who d- wrote the women aren't funny I don't know it w- it was Christopher I could swear it was anyways uh but you still get that and I'm like I'm not gonna name a list that's <laughs> offensive but everyone go listen to Maria Bamford because she's really funny and nothing not much of what she's doing has to do with her being a woman not that that makes it better but I I listened to Maria Bamford and I was driving in a car full of friends and uh, we were like on a highway in Ohio and we had to pull the car over because we were laughing so hard. (laughs) We couldn't, we couldn't move. Like it was, it was my friend pulled the car over and we were just losing it. Um, And she is so weird. (laughs) She does voices, not impressions, like voices, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, like it's just so strange. She talks about mental health a lot and it is also just telling stories, but it's not nearly as like 
tightly wrapped and perfect for the public consumption as Dane Cook, but it's the same kind of comedy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I feel like just being able to make your friends laugh because they know who you are and they know what kind of joke you're telling or they know the, the history behind it is nothing to scoff at. That's great. More laughter is always better, but you know, being able to not even read a room, but like regardless of the room, your material's that good that it's hard not to laugh at that. And if the person next to you is laughing, you're going to start laughing. You're going to get there. You're going to get on that track soon, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's why I kind of think it's sometimes, especially at a comedy show, it, it, um, if you, for, if for whatever reason you can just control the room, then like even the stuff that people don't find funny, they're going to laugh at. It's just like this, this sort of so much know, infectious laughter. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, <sighs> I was, I had joked like Jerry with Seinfeld could get up and say whatever he wants. People are going to continue to laugh all the time, which is know? funny because he has too much money now. He's not funny. I've, I've discovered that there is a certain amount of money that you have in life. Happened to Chevy Chase. We just not funny anymore. <laughs> you know, Jerry Seinfeld is because his, his comedy used to be relatable comedy. Yeah. Now he's like, Oh God, I hate it when my Porsche is stuck in second and my Butler is trying like, he would say bots eat their lobsters like this, like watching the comedians in cars, uh, drinking coffee or I have not watched that once and I have no desire to like, I almost I, I, like, I know what it is and I just don't want to see it. I mean, it's if he was taking out, uh, like every other episode was, you know, Tina Fey, Ellen DeGeneres or whatever, that's fine. And then every, and then, you know, he had like sort of unknown comedians that would be him like doing a service to his industry. But instead it's like rich people talking to rich people about, <laughs> how hard it is to be funny and rich. And I'm like, well, that's okay. I watched, I've, I've watched a few admittedly because like, you know, I, I like those people. I'll watch them. And then I watched the Ellen DeGeneres one on the recommendation of someone. And literally like Ellen's complaining about her wife needing more horses. And Jerry Seinfeld's talking about <laughs> the way to combat that problem is just to buy her a million horses. And I'm just like, this is the least relatable thing I've ever watched. <laughs> and he's just, and people reference him all the time. You know, Jerry Seinfeld won't do colleges anymore because they're so PC. And I'm like, well, also he's not that funny anymore. And colleges are stacked full of people who may never be able to <laughs> l- like be in a tax bracket that allows them to I don't know, <laughs> have a, a child that they don't have to send it. Debt but generation. It, it, it just seems so distant from what Jerry Fe- Seinfeld was originally good at so that's okay so that's what i've always find like found so interesting about just comedy in general is like it, it's just so mysterious what makes something funny and what makes something unfunny and why certain things are funny to certain people and certain things are not funny to other people and why you like comedy doesn't really seem to age at all you know like mm. drama you can you can um watch drama pieces from 50 years ago, hundred years ago. You won't watch them. You'll probably read them, but like those, those emotions translate. Like you feel that because you feel that, that, that the emotion of, you know, sadness or loss or whatever, but, but comedy, I mean, I watched things that I watched five years ago and just belly laughed at, and I don't find them even remotely funny today. And, you know, Monty Python flying circus, I think is a perfect example. Like that was such a groundbreaking, you know, comedy, um, troupe back in the day. 
and I there's there's things that I I enjoy, but I don't I don't know if I've ever really laughed out loud what? at something Excuse from Flying me? Circus. Are you serious? <laughs> Silly oh, walks I did. That was that. I was just went through all their material about <laughs> two months ago. And I was I mean, uh, well, the keep left signs. I mean, like, there's okay, but yes, they are. They are. It's good, and that's why I watch it. Like, it's unmistakably good. But in the same way that I don't necessarily laugh out loud at something very clever, a pun, I, I enjoy its humor. But I'm not like, you know, this is amazing. I I feel that way about. Monty Python because a lot of those jokes now I've seen in so many different forms oh, I see. you know okay. that well there's two things there a is there are jokes that you laughed at a long time ago like I'll still watch like I like I don't know, I'm trying to think, like a movie that always uh makes me laugh is Arthur with Dudley Moore it's from the 80s with Liza Minnelli. Anyways, very funny. Go watch it. <laughs> but it. I watch it now and I don't laugh out loud. I mean, I'm usually showing it to someone, trying to convince them to watch it. And it, it still makes me, I guess, laugh, but not laugh the way the first time I watched it when I was like, I think it was like nine. Sure. And and my mother loved it, showed it to me and I laughed. But you're not going to watch something that that is like the surprise, like you were talking about, Ryan and you, Dave. And so the surprise is gone. You know what's coming. You might still enjoy it but you're not going to laugh the same way. Also, British comedy and American comedy is different. Yes, everyone's right when they say that like baseline UK humor is smarter. Like the there it's it's a little bit more of a of a thinker most of the time. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, stand-up shows in the UK don't typically have applause breaks. And it's very common in I mean, very common in never in any of my shows or most of the people who are <laughs> lower level, but like in specials, you know, hour long specials or whatever, comedy central specials to have applause breaks, especially if they're making some good point that doesn't happen that much in, um, UK comedy arena comedy, maybe. So it's just a way of imbibing culture that, that might be different, different audiences. Yeah. But also it's a different target that UK comedians are hitting. Maybe. I mean, I could be entirely wrong, but, um, I wonder if that would have to do with it. Like, it's unfortunate you picked Monty Python. (laughs) Also because you're wrong and Monty Python's (laughs) hilarious and Ryan and I are on the same team with this one. But that's like case in point, right? People find different things funny, right? Like the, um, the, uh, like the, I forget what the troupe is called. Like the, the blue collar comedy guys like um jeff dunham jim white and jeff the D- yeah. guy and all like those, yeah. so i'm not yeah. allowed to swear so i can't talk about those guys sure, yeah <laughs> but but I know a lot more about so those guys. many people find that hilarious and it's just like really lost on me well i think it's fine to find those guys hilarious and it's fine that they're um reaching an audience and you know like okay good example is i don't think that like south park is a bad show um, I, I think, think South Park is like great show. Yeah. And I think it's like objectively a good show. South Park typically doesn't make me laugh. Like I've, I haven't watched it that much. It never interested me that much. And someone can show up and like take my comedy card away or something. But I just never really liked South Park that much. I could acknowledge that it's like objectively funny, but I don't think it's like bad. I just don't want to watch it. Then there's like Big Bang Theory, which is almost unilaterally hated <laughs> among the comedians I know and the the writers I know hate that show. And I understand people laughing at it because it's easy. It's spoon feeding you jokes, a lot of lampshading and just ridiculousness. And I'm just like, why are people settling for this? What's lampshading? Oh, um, a lampshading lampshading is like in big bang theory. It'll be something like, what's the, 
Sheldon, the main guy, um, which at a certain point, I feel like Big Bang Theory is just like laughing at different forms of autism. But Sheldon will be like, blah, 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 sexist joke. And then he'll turn to someone in the scene and go, and by the way, that was sexist. And, I, and that's lampshading. It's like it's it comes from in in like kind of screwballish comedy someone will be hiding from their pursuer and they'll stand and put a lampshade on their head oh, as if they're a right. lamp. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, they can't see me, blah, 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 but I'm clearly <laughs> in the room. That's where the term, I'm pretty sure that's where the term come from, yeah. comes from. And watch Big Bang Theory sometime and you'll be like, oh, okay, so it's fine that we're making this series of terrible jokes that wouldn't pass the the woke standard of today. And it's like, yeah, they wouldn't, but... So, so let me ask you guys this, because I, I feel like the Big Bang... <laughs> Big Bang Theory is one of those series that smarter intellectual people love to like have a it's it's a punching bag. It's like, oh, if you find the Big Bang Theory funny, then you're not a smart person and you find dumb things funny. That's that's sort of am I am I like off base that that's kind of the the feeling. That's why that show is derided because there are clearly enough people who like it that it's still being made. It's hugely popular. Like if they've done something well, it's making something insanely popular. Right. But so my, no. My I mean question- I don't think people are stupid for liking Big Bang Theory. And I don't think most people do. What no 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 no, but not 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 your opinion, but would you say that that's kind of why it's derided in in comedy circles? I mean, that's what I've kind of picked up. Like, oh, you like the Big Bang Theory, you must be not. Oh, uh, okay. So kind of like to make an analogy, if you're a musician, let's say classically trained pianist and then you listen to Coldplay, you're just like I mean, it's fine bubblegum pop, I guess. Is that kind of what you're saying, totally. Dave? Totally, yeah, exactly. Okay, Okay, you're going to make me want to defend Coldplay because Big Bang Theory is, is, is the problem with Big, the problem that, like, I've hung out with writers, right? So I was in a grad, like, I was in undergrad, but I was in a graduate school for television writing. And our professor brought up Big Bang Theory. I think they'd gotten renewed for 19 more seasons or whatever (laughs) and brought it up. And everyone in the room, which admittedly not everyone in the room was a good writer, but everyone in the room was in that world a little bit Mm -hmm. and we all groaned and we kind of laughed at the like the unison (laughs) like we were just like yes we all hate this show but then she was like all right great let's talk about it and it came down to us being like this is a show that you know in in whatever we are the golden age of television that in in the age of television we're in which is giving audience more giving audiences more credit of understanding nuance being able to understand what an anti-hero is of understanding that satire should punch up not down then there's big bang theory that's like hey remember all those wishy-washy sitcoms from the 90s like here's a big old dose of that Hmm. and it it was just like frustrating because it was like i i don't think someone's bad for liking big bang theory it's that the writers knew what they were doing and kept doing it Mm 